episode of Black Off Radio. Tonight we are talking to Jim DiEugenio. Well known, needs no introduction. Hello, Jim. Good evening, Len. Pleasure to speak to you. Sometimes I ask you about the weather in LA, so what's the weather <laughs> like there today? It's raining. Oh. It's been, it's been raining for the last two days. Well. Okay. It's been pretty bad, by the way. All right. You guys need water, so, don't you? So you, you probably have it on me now for today. I mean, it's not snowing up there, is it? No, not today, no. Okay, all right. Okay, I, I, so you've had all these stars on, and I haven't been on in a while. Okay, uh, you know, uh, Libby Handros, Rob Reiner, okay, et cetera, and you have more to come. Yeah. So um, let's take a look at Kennedy's and King, and I'll try and answer some questions, okay, let, let, as we usually do. Yeah, First by the way, all, uh, just to, well, Kennedy's and King, I had Jeff Carter on last week, along with John Armstrong, and I got a lot of mail in. A lot of people really appreciated that. That Jeff has been writing some good uh, articles that are up there, talking about uh, NSAM 263 and Fletcher Prouty, and uh, just mm-hmm. leveling the field from from people that are <laughs> ranting and raving, and they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> that was a good article. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was a good article, and... Uh, it got a lot of attention on the education forum, you know. Uh, it got like about 150 comments or something. So that was a good article that we printed. You know, I always like to go ahead and print Jeff's stuff. Okay, so I'm glad you had him on. Now, I think the last time I was on, we talked about Hugh Ainsworth. Yeah. And it's so odd that within a few weeks of Ainsworth dying, another disinformationist passed away, Edward Epstein. And I also wrote about him. Now, before we get to that, I just wanted, there's an interesting article by Chad Nagel about a Solving JFK podcast by Matt Crumpton, who was one of the co-writers on the JFK assassination show, Colds With Me. And uh, Chad's a very interesting guy who does some pretty good work on the JFK case. All right. Now, there's also a review by Paul Blow about the new book, Pipe the Bimbo in Red by, uh, I think you know these two guys, don't you? One of them is uh, Don Jeffries. You know him, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then the other one is William Matson Law. Right. Okay, who did a couple of good books on the Kennedy autopsy. In fact, I think he wrote 
one of the best books on the medical evidence in the Kennedy case, which is really kind of an oral history. But they combined to do a book, which I think is the only one I ever saw that focused on uh, Dean Andrews through his former wife and his son. So that that's an interesting review by Paul. I'm always glad to publish his stuff also. He was another co-writer on the JFK assassination chokeholds. And there is another new article by Johnny Kearns. Johnny is becoming one of the most valuable writers that we have at kennedysandking.com. And I think you're trying to line him up for an interview about his fine piece on Ruth Payne. Okay, over the 60th anniversary, Thomas Mallon, who wrote Mrs. Payne's Garage, did a seminar with good old Ruthie. Okay, in I think Irving, Texas. Johnny Cairns, who lives in the United Kingdom, went across the pond for the anniversary, and he was one of the people in attendance at that seminar. And I'm going to let him talk about his article, but I just want to point out two things. One of the things that they, that Mallon and Ruthie used was if Oswald shot at Walker, he had to have shot at Kennedy. Now, here I'm thinking there must have been one intelligent person there who should have raised his sand and said, why would Oswald shoot at this right wing flaming fascist and then assassinate the most liberal president since FDR a few months later? What what ideological or political sense does that make? OK, well, I guess nobody asked that question or Malin was probably clearing the questions in advance. I think Johnny says that in his article. And then the other question that always puzzles me is Oswald asked her to get in contact with a lawyer out of New York City, John Apt. And she just thought, and Mallon backed her up, that that was actually sickening. Well, this puzzled me also because Michael Payne and Ruth Payne, Michael was a member of the Unitarian Church. Ruth Payne was from a Quaker background. But they were both members of the American Civil Liberties Union. Now, I don't have to tell people how the ACLU came to prominence in the United States. It came to prominence during the Palmer raids, okay? When Hoover and J. Mitchell Palmer, the attorney general, were trying to get rid of many people who they thought were dangerous radicals, okay? Literally hundreds, maybe thousands of people were rounded up and had no representation, not allowed any representation. That's how the ACLU got started. Well, Michael Payne took Lee Oswald to an ACLU meeting. Oswald ended up joining. So why would you belong to the ACLU if you didn't think this guy deserved an attorney? You know? Well, of course, that question didn't get asked either. <laughs> so anyway, Johnny's article is very good. And I, I certainly hope everybody reads that. We have a lot of nice articles there. Okay, up there if you haven't seen them. Uh, and I'm really glad you had Jeff Carter on. Because that's always such an interesting subject, you know, Kennedy's intent to withdraw from Vietnam because uh, it was hidden for so long. All right, and Fletcher Prouty was one of the first people to actually expose that and to the light of day. Okay, now, before I get to the questions, I want to talk about Edward Epstein. Edward Epstein passed away at 88 years old approximately a month ago. Epstein was a very influential guy in the Kennedy field, 
because he wrote his first book was Inquest, first of a trilogy. For that book, he got Andrew Hacker, a professor at Cornell, to write him a letter gaining him an entry to most of the Warren commissioners, plus Shaley Rankin, plus some of the attorneys like Wesley Liebler. I think the only guy who refused was Earl Warren. And so Hacker and him decided that the Warren Commission was going to be a test for American democracy. Could they really deal honestly with the assassination of President Kennedy? All right. Now, Inquest was published in 1966, and it was the first of this giant tidal wave, which included Mark Lane's book, Rush to Judgment, Sylvia Marr's book, Accessories After the Fact, and Josiah Thompson's book, Six Seconds in Dallas. But there was a significant difference between Epstein's book and the other books. Let me quote Joe McBride from his book, Political Truth, commenting on Epstein's book. If the commission had made it clear that very substantial evidence, in, in fact, this is right out of his book, indicated the presence of a second assassin, it would have opened a Pandora's box of doubts and suspicions. In establishing its version of the truth, the Warren Commission acted to reassure the nation and protect the national interest. What an amazing quote that is, isn't it? I mean, really. And so this is why the first part of the book is called Political Truth. You know, in my opinion, there's no such thing as political truth. Okay? It doesn't exist. If you're a politician... If you're doing something politically, you can't really tell the truth. Now, McBride goes on and he says, it's pretty obvious that the author knew full well that the assassination was covered up. But he was trying to justify the reasons for the cover-up. And in fact, John McCloy told him that the function of the Warren Commission was to show the world that America was not a banana republic, where a government can be changed by a conspiracy. Now, if you go into an investigation... And that's your whole philosophy. How can you possibly think that you're going to uncover the truth? Now, later on in his life, not for inquest, but later on, and I'm talking way later on, 50 years later, all right, maybe longer, Epstein finally revealed what Arlen Specter had told him. It's in his online ebook, The JFK Assassination Diary, and then in his memoir, Assume Nothing. He revealed that when he asked Arlen Specter how he convinced the commission about the single bullet theory, Specter replied that he told them it was either that or start looking for a second assassin. Why Epstein kept that hidden for five decades is very puzzling. But to me, that gives away the game. And we included it in our book, The JFK Assassination Chokeholds, because that is not number one following the evidence, or number two, a viable standard of proof. And by the way, this is one of the things that Andrew Eiler talks about in the JFK Assassination Chokeholds book. He's an attorney from up there in Canada, Hamilton, I think. How there was no standard of proof in either the Warren Commission or the House Select Committee. And if there's no standard of proof, then what validity does your verdict have? And the answer is none. Okay. Something else that Epstein discovered is that many of the junior counsel, and these were the guys who did most of the work for the commission, 
not the commissioners and not the senior council, but the junior councils did most of the work, that they did not fully agree with the commissioners. Bert Griffin, for example, told Patrick Dean that he was a liar. Patrick Dean was in charge of security the day Jack Ruby came into City Hall and gunned down Oswald. They also believed that Marina Oswald fabricated her story about Oswald attempting to kill Richard Nixon. And Wesley Liebler was probably the most skeptical of all of them. He referred to the commission as Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, with Marina as Snow White and Earl Warren as Dopey. (laughs) Dopey. Yeah, right. You know, all those dwarfs had a nickname and, and Earl Warren was Dopey. But really, even though it was revealing, there was a lot of stuff that Epstein somehow didn't get onto, and that came out later. And this, of course, one of them was that Jerry Ford changed the position of the posterior wound from the back to the neck. And it's funny because he interviewed J. Lee Rankin, and it was through J. Lee Rankin's son that we found that out for the ARB, okay, because he showed us the markings on the first draft of the Warren Commission where Ford changed that. Another thing is that he apparently never found out that there was no transcript made of the final executive session meeting of the commission. He describes the debate that took place, but if you look at his footnotes, these were all interviews that he did. He never went to the National Archives to find out that there was no transcript made of that final executive session meeting. But Harold Weisberg did. Now, that would have been very interesting because he could have then told Richard Russell and Senator John Cooper about it, that they had been hoodwinked about their objections being recorded to the single bullet theory. Okay, and we know the way those two guys felt, especially after your interview with Morris Wolf. You know, they never bought the single bullet theory anyway. Now, what's very strange about Epstein is that very shortly after inquest was published and i mean very shortly epstein seems to have switched sides okay i mean i don't think anybody can say that inquest was not a critical book because it was but suddenly he appeared on the record album of scavengers and critics of the Warren report that book co-written by larry schiller that made fun of all the critics of the commission that was out in january of 1967 then John Kellen, of course, in his excellent book, Praise from a Future Generation, he describes a meeting with Salandria and Epstein. Okay, There was a, a seminar, a debate up in Boston. Epstein was invited. He declined. Vincent Salandria attended and was one of the participants. After the debate, Salandria was surprised to see Epstein in the audience, and they had a brief exchange. And Salandria was puzzled as to why Epstein did not show up to participate in the debate. And he said, I've changed, Vince. And Salandria replied, you mean you made a deal? Epstein smirked and said, you know what happened? And he walked away. All right. Years later, now this is really hard to believe, but it's true. On the Larry King show, he actually said he thought the men who served on the Warren Commission served in good faith. Oh, my God. Can you imagine anybody saying that when we now have Morris Wolf and Valerie Destang both saying that Jerry Ford 
knew that the Warren Commission was a sham. That means, of course, that the Warren Commission was actually a minority report. So how Epstein could go that far is really, really amazing. But in his next two books, he now became, and there's no other way to say this, an unapologetic defender of the Warren Commission. Because of inquests, he was invited by the New Yorker, the editor Wallace Shawn, to go to New Orleans and write a long article about the JFK investigation being done by Jim Garrison. All right. It's very obvious if you read his diary that he had a bias going in. He should have never been invited to do that article. And some of the people he consulted with were like Tom Bethel. You know, and Tom Bethel was, I don't think there's any question about this today. I wrote an article about him, that he was a plant in Garrison's office. There's no question about that. He was also consorting with Clay Shaw's lawyers. He was also discussing things with Elmer Gertz, who was an attorney for both Jack Ruby and Gordon Novell. All right. Within one week of that article being published, the CIA was circulating it as an example of how they could counter critics of the Warren Report. I guess that's just a coincidence. He bought the fact that when Andrews said that Shaw was not Clay Bertrand, that he was telling the truth. Well, Dean Andrews was convicted for perjury, okay, on that issue. And he secretly admitted to Harold Weisberg that, in fact, Clay Shaw was Bertrand. All right. Now, let me say something else, which I did include in this article. There was a debate, I think, in 1992 in New York. Some of the participants were Norman Mailer, uh, Victor Navasky, the editor of The Nation, Edward Epstein, and Oliver Stone. Epstein had written a couple of articles blasting Oliver Stone and his movie and Fletcher Prouty. I replied to both of these. You can catch these online. I think that is called the, uh, the, the Bizarre World of Edward Epstein or something like that. But you can, you can get it by Googling my name and Edward Epstein. All right. But anyway, Epstein objected to the scene in JFK where David Ferry's in the hotel room and he's confessing all this very interesting stuff, including that he knew Clay Shaw and Clay Shaw was CIA, etc. Now, Garrison does mention that in passing, but Epstein kept on asking, well, why is it in his book? Well, it is in a very abbreviated form in his book, but the reason Garrison didn't detail it is because he wasn't there. It was Lou Ivon who was there. And since this story was being told through Garrison, that's why that was the case. Now, other people talked to Ivon and he described that scene. And then later on in one of his articles, Epstein said he called Ivon and Ivon said it didn't happen. This very much puzzled me because Ivon had talked to Joan Mellon, Bill Davey, and Jane Rusconi, the researcher for JFK. So I called up Lou Ivon. By the way, he was the chief investigator for Garrison during the uh, whole JFK investigation. He's passed away now. And I asked him, I said, Lou, have you talked to Edward Epstein lately? And Lou said, Edward Epstein? 
He said, no, not lately. I remember talking to him a very long time ago when Jim was doing his garrison. Jim was doing his Clay Shaw investigation. And I told him what Epstein said. And Ivan said, that's bullshit. Okay. That just, that didn't happen. He didn't call me. Not recently at all. This is the kind of guy Epstein was. Okay. And by the way, you, you should really, if you, if that, that debate is online. Okay, it's on YouTube, and it's really a sickening thing to, to watch, rather, okay, because Epstein just distorted everything. He said words to the effect that Garrison was sued by Walter Sheridan for libel or something like that. That's not true at all. Garrison indicted Sheridan for trying to intimidate and bribe witnesses in his investigation. And this is all detailed in Bill Davies' book and Joan Mellon's book. That's the reason that he indicted him. Not because any kind of libel had nothing to do with it. And if, by the way, and if, if that would have stayed in state court, Sheridan would have been not just indicted but convicted. All right. But like many people, he got it shifted to federal court, like Clay Shaw eventually did for his trial on perjury. Now, here is a capper as far as Edward Epstein goes. His next book on the JFK case was something called Legend. This was a full-scale biography of Lee Harvey Oswald. It's interesting when he got the offer from Reader's Digest because it was right after the church committee and when everybody expected a new investigation of the JFK case because it was after Geraldo Rivera showed the Zapruder film. So it's pretty clear that Reader's Digest wanted to get a jump on such a reopening. And so knowing what they wanted, they called up Epstein. And Reader's Digest, as I quote in the article, had connections to both the FBI and the CIA. And they got Epstein into the FBI to look at their files. And John Barron, a senior editor, was very friendly with the CIA. He got Epstein access to Yuri Nisenko which is utterly amazing because I don't think anybody even knew where Yuronisenko was at that time because they had given him a new identity and the CIA had bought him as a house. All right, the only other guy I know who did that was Gerald Posner because he had connections to Bob Loomis, the editor at Random House, and he got him access to Nosenko. Well, this happened with Epstein years before. All right. They also told him that he would have access to the Mexico City tapes, which is really, really amazing. And he was very, very frequently calling James Angleton. And both Angleton and Epstein both admitted this. Now, when I later talked to Jim Mars about the Epstein book, Legend, he said he talked to a researcher because Reader's Digest pumped a lot of money into this book. Okay, I mean a lot. You're talking like two million, I think. All right, and Epstein got a $500,000 advance, which is $2.5 today. But Jim Mars asked one of the researchers, he said, why did you solely focus on Oswald's probable, or rather possible ties to the KGB, when in fact his ties to the CIA were at least as obvious as those to the Russians? And she replied that they were advised to avoid that area. So that's how bad a book that legend was. All that money for a book that says that the Russians recruited Oswald 
And then when he came back to the United States, he pledged allegiance to Castro. And that's why Oswald shot Kennedy. And the Russians sent Nilsenko over to discourage any thought the KGB was involved. Well, you you mentioned Reader's Digest, and we now find out that it was a CIA asset. Yes, that's very, very true. There was a biography of the couple who owned the uh, that magazine, which, by the way, was unbelievably influential back then. It had one of the biggest circulations of any magazine in the country. But also was trusted, you know? Yes. And remember, back then was way before the online revolution. Okay, people were, would get the thing in their mail. And they would read the thing. It'd be, oh, doctor's offices and dentist's offices, you know? Okay, it'd be everywhere. I think it had a circulation of over 10 million. All right, so you were going to get a lot of exposure for Epstein's book. Today, of course, we know just how much that Epstein did not look at. For instance, the work of Betsy Wolf that later exposed at the HSCA that Oswald's file to the CIA was being rigged before he went to Russia. Of course, the CIA didn't tell him that. We also know about Clay Shaw and his two CIA clearances. All right, and he was highly paid as a contract agent. Well, somehow they didn't tell him that either. Or was that, you know, recently Malcolm Blunt sent me this. We only have the cover sheet to this, but it's called Black Tape Operation. And there are 14 files in this. And it's James Angleton. And it's operations against Jim Garrison. But the, but, if you, but the ARB never got the underlying file folders. They only got the cover sheet. So this is the guy that uh, Epstein is talking to. Now, of course we know Epstein was the last person to see George DeMore and Shelter Live. He was paying about $1,000 a day for interviews down in Florida. On the second day after DeMore and Child left the hotel room, I think it was the Breakers, he went to a friend's house where he was staying. I think it was his daughter's friend. And the story is that he shot himself with a shotgun blast. Dennis Bloodworth was a DA investigating the case. He called Epstein in and said he wanted to see the notes of the interviews he was doing with DeMore and Sheld. Apparently, with a straight face, Epstein said he didn't have any notes and wasn't making any tape recordings. Bloodworth did not believe it. You don't pay a guy that kind of money and then have no notes or tapes. Under further questioning, Epstein told Bloodworth that he was also paying for DeMornschild's rented car. And he added this, and I'm quoting from a Mark Lane article from November of 1977. He showed DeMore and Sheld a document which indicated he might be taken back to Parkland Hospital in Dallas and given more electroshock treatments. And Bloodworth told Lane, you know, DeMore and Sheld was deathly afraid of those treatments. They can wreck your mind. And, of course, if you read Jim Marr's book, he interviewed Jeannie DeMore and Sheld. And that's what she said was happening to DeMore and Sheld. There was a mysterious doctor named Mendoza who was giving him those electric shock treatments, and she believes they destabilized DeMorenshaw. Now, let me close with this to show you how plugged in Edward Epstein was to the power elite while he was writing his book, Legend. When Oswald defected to Russia, 
he was on a ship in which he was traveling in a cabin with a guy named Billy Joe Lord. Okay. This was back in 1959. They spent about two weeks together crossing the Atlantic. And for that reason, Epstein wanted to interview Lord for his book. Lord did not want to talk to Epstein since he realized that Epstein was a critic of anybody who contested the Warren Commission. Lord then did a meeting with one of Epstein's researchers. And one of them said that if he resisted, they would have to apply pressure to him. And, and remember, this is back in 1976-1977. They knew two people who could do that. One was James Allison, a local newspaper chain owner and a friend of the Bush family. The other was no less than future governor and president George W. Bush. I conclude with that's the kind of power you get when you have a 2.5 million advance on a JFK assassination book. Can you imagine that? Back in 1977, being able to get Allison and George W. Bush to pressure somebody as small time as Billy Joe Lord to talk to you for a book, that's just amazing. Uh, and by the way, Billy Joe Lord said that he still resisted and he believed that his phone was tapped later on. So that's my sign off for Edward Epstein. Okay. Can you imagine Ed, Epstein and Ainsworth dying within a few weeks of each other? Okay. Incredible. <laughs> well, I wouldn't be that unkind, you know. <laughs> um all right let me uh let me turn to some questions which you know for whatever reason we always get here i guess there's a lot of people interested in things that uh, are hard to decipher okay okay this one i i don't know did i say this one before a guy named Corey. All right, I think this is a follow-up to my my answer about his discharge. Yes, okay. Thanks, Len and Jim. Oswald was granted an honorable discharge originally and then sent to Russia as a false defector. Then he didn't show up for his reserve drills in the United States, which he couldn't because he was in Russia. So the Department of Navy automatically downrated his discharge. When he contested it, they wouldn't fix it. Just seems like a crap move to do to someone you sent to Russia as a false defector with possible secrets to spill if you pissed him off. Doesn't seem to, for me to fit into the Patsy thing. It, it was actually in 1962 when he came back. Okay. Not, I think he says he thought it was 1960. Okay, well, when you... When, my answer to that is when you're building a legend for somebody, that's the kind of thing that you that you have to do. I mean, how do you explain a guy from the Marine Corps going to the Soviet Union for over two years, staying there, bringing back a Russian wife, okay, and then you don't downgrade his discharge? Okay, I, I would just think that that's something that you would have to do. And remember, Oswald was working on trying to get that fixed through Dean Andrews, you know, Clay Shaw's buddy in New Orleans. 
All right, so that's a, another indication, I believe, of, of who he really was. All right, now, Diane Gilhula from Ontario, Canada. General Charles Willoughby was mentioned in Rob Reiner's recent podcast. Have you ever written about him? Well, short answer is no. Willoughby was mentioned as being part of the planning of the assassination. If you have not written about him, will you please consider doing that? I just checked in Wikipedia, and this is what was written. Willoughby was named by Rob Reiner and Soldat O'Brien as the master tactician of the Kennedy assassination in collaboration with Bill Harvey. Well, Diane, I don't agree with that, and that's why I've never written about it. Okay, I think the reason that Rob Reiner uh, put it on his radio series was because one of the chief researchers for him was Dick Russell. Okay, Dick Russell was, I believe, the first person to write about Willoughby being a possible part of the conspiracy. I like the man who knew too much. Uh, especially the abridged version. I think the first version was way too long, like 800 pages. All right. But I never I never got bought into Dick's case, you know, for Willoughby being somehow at the top level of the pyramid, you know, for the Kennedy assassination. You know, I believe there's other people who make you can make a much more convincing case about and a couple of them being uh, James Angleton and Alan Dulles all right so Willoughby I believe made his reputation as Douglas MacArthur's um, yeah he wasn't he his intelligence officer okay yeah, he was Douglas MacArthur's intelligence officer, and he was in the uh, service from for a long time, you know, like 40 years, and he rose to be a major general. Uh, he served in both, you know, World War One, and then, of course, World War Two, and since MacArthur occupied Japan, he was part of that also, but I just never... You know, looking back at looking back at Dick's book, I just never found. Oh, he was also part of the Korean War. I just never felt that Dick made a convincing case of that. I mean, see, Dick wrote a lot about H. L. Hunt, okay, and Willoughby was worked for H. L. Hunt because H. L. Hunt developed this very big communications, the syndicated communications, radio and, and magazines, etc. But, you know, I just never found that all that convincing either, that H.L. Hunt was a part of the Kennedy assassination. In fact, I believe some of that, as Joan Mellon discovered, was disinformation because the CIA had decided to infiltrate Hunt's organization. So, you know, I, so that's why I've never really taken that all that seriously. I mean, if somebody can show me something, some convincing evidence 
okay, then I'll be glad to look at it. But as of today, I've just never seen anything that was really that strong about Willoughby. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to look into it a little further. And uh, whatever I find, Jim, I'll, I'll forward to you. Okay. I'm reading a book that mentions uh, at arm's length some of those characters. So uh, we won't close the door on that, and I'll uh, I'll look further into that detail. Okay, Lynn. Thank you so much. All right. John Trice, I've enjoyed your articles and books. Have you ever done a critique or review of Mark Furman's book, A Simple Act of Murder, published in 2006? Well, the reason I haven't is because I know that Mark Furman had to do that book. And the reason I know this is that before he wrote that book, I was a guest on his radio show up in Spokane. At that time, he was a dyed-in-the-wool conspiracist. How do I know this? He had me on for over an hour. And then he asked me to come back for another hour a week later. He loved the book. The book we were discussing was The Assassinations which came out in 2003. All right. So this was before his book. And, I, you know, I hate to say this, but it's true. That was one of the best interviews I did for that book. Okay. Furman was very, very interested in coming from a detective background. All right. He understood the many problems with the case against Oswald. So <laughs> this is why I decided not to review that book. Because I don't really think that's who Mark Furman really was at the time. Okay. All right. So that's a little bit of inside knowledge. Okay. From a guy who was up front with, with Mark Furman. From the OJ trial fame. Yeah. Right. Right. Remember what he said? Uh, go ahead for people who don't. If I go down, their case goes down. Okay. Which, of course, is what happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, here is a very long letter from Michael Murphy. Okay, who I think we talked to once about. Okay. And he says I want to clarify. This is really long, so I'm going to have to abridge it. I'm going to clarify my first email regarding the Zapruder film. All right. I disagree with Dale Myers who says that Connolly what Connolly heard was a take shot, which only leaves the possibility that when Connolly observed Kennedy reacting to being shot, he had himself not realized he was hit and didn't notice that his rib and wrist bones were smashed. A delayed reaction, yet still holding the Stetson hat in his right hand. Okay. This leads me back to your view or guess that Connolly saw Kennedy at about frame 250 to 280. I would say, having looked at the Zapruder film again, the earliest time would be 262. The latest frame would be 279. By this time, I'm sure he did see him. At this point, I will finish regards my first email topic for now and move to my additional visual observation of the Z film. All right. My observations regarding the Z film may not be worth mentioning or raising questions. I will try not to be long-winded and keep the rest of it brief. I noticed the first for the first time when I saw the film shown on Oliver Stone's movie in 1992. When the film is shown at the Clay Shaw trial, I saw a prominent marker object appear by Kennedy's right earlobe, one millisecond or, to be more precise, the frame before the headshot. 
It was that quick. If you blinked, you would miss it. Or even if you saw it, you might not notice it because it disappeared so quickly. An object by Kennedy's right earlobe. I don't think I've ever seen that. Years later, I got my youngest sister to type a letter to Oliver Stone with observation. But she asked a silly question like, was it a bullet? Which made me look like a crackpot. But having waited for so long for her to type the letter in the first place, I decided to send it anyway to a California studio with a photo of the frame in question. I was stupid in that I used a bubble wrap envelope, and this could have looked suspicious with the war on terror on full alert in those days, and it might have even ended up in FBI hands. Now, I never got a reply to my letter to Oliver Stone. Another point I'd like to make regarding the strange movements of a funny-dressed man standing on the opposite side of the road to the umbrella man, slightly further up towards the overpass, and can be seen after the car goes past the Stemmons freeway sign around 2.30. He's not looking at the president. I suggest he's looking at the direction of the book depository or Dell Tex building, but certainly past where Kennedy is on Elm Street. This man has both hands up as if clapping, and then both hands come down, go past his back together. Most unusual to me. It looks like he's giving a signal to someone in the vicinity of the grassy knoll. That the first shot, or shots if I'm right, thinking that the first shot just before Kennedy goes behind the road sign, hits him in the back, and the second shot is Kennedy in the throat from the front. Probably from a silencer. Regarding the clothes, I first thought he may be wearing a butcher's apron, but haven't looked closer and more to the point see him in one of the, of the photos taken after the president's car sped to Parkland Hospital. I saw him walking with a look of a man who has done his job and is making his way to his next destination. All right. By the way, there's actually a thread about that on the education forum. It's called the Butcher of Elm Street. So he might be onto something there. All right. My final observation regarding frames of the Z film. Connie looked at Kennedy when Kennedy was reacting to be shot. I went on Google on my phone and went to the Zapruder film frame by frame. I pressed on where it says images as opposed to where it says videos. So when the images came up, I scrolled down and was drawn to a black and white photo of frame 230, which I recognized straight away because it's the clearest frame which shows Conley holding his Stetson hat in his right hand the one where his wrist is supposed to be broken at the point in time. All right, now back to the black and white picture. Conley is leaning to his right and looking forward. I would say it's where the bullet came from because I never saw a black and white picture of frame 230 and it looked like a clearer image in his Zapruder frame. I decided to look closer to where Conley was looking and zoomed into the image, making it bigger and bigger. As the picture got bigger, I saw what appeared to be a white a white line and carried on zooming in when a black mark or darker mark size of a hole roughly in the middle and just above the white line, which took on the appearance of a crack with a hole in it. By the way, this photo in question had the title, Story of the Home Movie That Made Zapruder Famous. Under the title was the name of the paper it was printed in, which was the Boston Globe. The article was written in 2016. It might be idea if the original photograph still survives or someone to ask for a copy to show the public interested in the assassination so you can have a better look. 
Like I said, I don't know if this photo is the real McCoy or not. If you haven't have an option on it, you could pass it on to someone who you respect and might specialize in the field of photographic evidence to see if it's authentic. Or you could simply email me and put, write down nothing burger. <laughs> okay. And that goes for my other two observations. A black and white version of the Zapruder film? Never Have you ever heard of, heard of that, man? No, never heard of it. No, not at all. I don't know how that... Uh, who would who would bother making a black and white version? Just for how, Life Life magazine it, I mean, something? if the film is shot in color, why would you turn it to black and white? You know, I don't understand that. In fact, when I was going to film school, I don't think you could have done it back then. And we worked with Super 8 film. So... That's very, very strange, to, to say the least. Okay, now, uh, okay, that's it right now for the letters, okay? I'm working on a two-part article about the movie Blonde, if you recall. That was a Brad Pitt production of the Joyce Carol Oates novelization about Marilyn Monroe, okay, and including JFK. And I've been working on this now for several days. I went to a couple libraries to get books. And I think it's going to turn out to be a pretty interesting thing. Okay, by the next time you're on, we're on, I'm on with you, we'll be able to talk about this. Okay, and I learned a lot of new and interesting stuff, especially from the work of Don McGovern, who you've had on before, and Gary Vitaco Robles, who I don't think you have had on before. But he wrote a two-volume book about the death of Marilyn Monroe, which had a lot of very, very interesting stuff. It's like a two-volume version of Don McGovern's book. Very good. So anyway, that's something to look forward to, Lynn. Yeah. Okay, Thank yeah. you for having me on. Yeah, very good. Oh, let me add one other thing. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. One of the things that Dick Russell thought was interesting about Willoughby is that that wasn't his real name. Yeah, that he, that he got a letter from somebody, you know, right. years earlier, saying, "If you want to know something interesting, look into this guy." Right, because he was actually from Germany, and he had a very distinctive Adolf Karl Wiedenbach was his real name, and he was born in in Heidelberg, and so evidently that's one of the things that. Dick Russell thought was was really interesting about Charles Willoughby. Okay, having studied this phenomenon for a very long time, you know, and all the people who came in via, for example, Paperclip and the Galen organization, just he came in, he came in earlier. Okay. Okay. Well, Jim. Yeah, I'm just. I've been hearing a little tiny funny beep. I don't know where it's coming from. So, it's we'll pick it up next time you're on. Okay. All right. Have a good night, buddy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Good night.